I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, on the final day of an exciting and unpredictable Supreme Court term, we have a wrap-up with two of America's leading constitutional experts. Carrie Severino is Chief Counsel and Policy Director of the Judicial Crisis Network. Earlier this month, Carrie participated in a thrilling Intelligence Squared debate on presidential power at the National Constitution Center, which you can watch at constitutioncenter.org. And Michael Dorff is the Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at Cornell Law School, a member of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, and a returning champion on We the People. Carrie, Mike, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Good to be here. Mike, let me start with you. You clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy, who uh, was not only a swing vote this term, but in the eyes of some observers, uh, a swing vote who swung left. Uh, The New York Times had a piece recently suggesting that this court was moving in a liberal direction. And on issues ranging from affirmative action to abortion, uh, Justice Kennedy uh, was accused by dissenters, at least in those cases, of shifting his votes. did he shift in affirmative action? He certainly seemed to be more sympathetic to racial classifications than he had before, but uh, abortion, uh, perhaps uh, you feel differently. Tell us about Justice Kennedy and how his performance this term fits into his previous jurisprudence. So coming into the sort of tail end of the term following Justice Scalia's passing, a lot of people thought that um, this would be uh, an important term for Justice Kennedy, uh, because when he joined the liberals, that would mean five votes. If he joined the conservatives, the court would be deadlocked. And so the question is, where would he join the liberals? I think most people expected that he would join the liberal wing in the abortion case and today's decision um, invalidating the two challenged Texas abortion laws vindicates that judgment. That's not a huge surprise, given that Justice Kennedy um, in uh, 1992 voted to uh, reaffirm what they called the central holding of Roe v. Wade. Uh, He had voted to uphold the federal uh, partial birth abortion ban act in 2007, but that was a case involving late-term abortion. This is a case involving restrictions on all abortions, chiefly uh, early abortions. And so I I don't think it was all that surprising that he voted the way he did. Maybe it's a little bit surprising that the opinion was as strong as it was, and we can get into that a little bit later. With respect to affirmative action, Um, I think what we could say about Justice Kennedy is that he finally put his money where his mouth is. If you go back and look at Justice Kennedy on affirmative action, basically um, over the last 20 years, when he first joined the court, he took a very strong rhetorical position against it. Uh, In one case, he actually compared affirmative action to South African apartheid, uh, at least in one respect. But after that, he somewhat moderated in his tone in saying that he was open to allowing some limited use of race under certain circumstances. But even though he said that, he always voted to strike down whatever uh, affirmative action program came before the court, uh, even as he was staking out a more moderate position in principle. Finally, uh, this past week in the Fisher case, he actually came off the fence and said, yes, it's not just that I think in principle there is some permissible use of race, I think this is it. Now, the question then is whether that means that he's going to be more liberal in general on affirmative action, more liberal in general 
I think those are open questions. Uh, one way to understand what's going on, though, is I think that perhaps he sees the writing on the wall um, and realizes that he's no longer going to be the crucial fifth vote in the event that, say, uh, Hillary Clinton becomes president and appoints a successor to uh, Justice Scalia. And so he's, uh, you know, going the way the wind blows. Uh, I'm very skeptical of that that view, although I've heard it voiced, because I think that he's got more integrity than that. I think it's largely an accident of timing and maybe a kind of longer term evolution in his thinking about a variety of issues. Very interesting. Carrie, your thoughts about Justice Kennedy, about the New York Times' claim that this is a more liberal court and, uh, and, and what you think might explain uh, Justice Kennedy's evolution? Uh, yeah, I, I do think uh, that, that while the New York Times probably has it right, I think we've seen, especially in the last two terms, uh, a, a real dramatic shift uh, in the kind of record numbers of wins for liberal, uh, the liberal coalition on the court. Um, but I'm not sure it's quite as dramatic in, in Kennedy's case as the uh, New York Times piece puts it, partly because of their methodology. This court, without Justice Scalia, has become a one-way ratchet, uh, you know, as, as Michael referred to. Anytime Justice Kennedy joins the liberals, it's a, it's a five-vote uh, majority. That's a, that's a decision that's handed down and kind of set in stone as Supreme Court precedent. If he joins the conservatives, it's it, probably a 4-4. And then nobody actually knows for sure, although many people can guess at what the votes were. And so those decisions aren't counted. So you, you practically remove any cases that, that Justice Kennedy swung to the right uh, from the analysis. So it makes it hard to actually uh, see a, a, a fair balance on how he, he really voted this term. That said, I think we have really seen uh, that shift. And the Fisher case is maybe one of the clearest examples, because when the case came up previously, this is the second time at the court, he was actually writing the majority. And, and if you if you uh, credit some of the behind-the-scenes uh, leaks that came out, he was planning on writing a case that very, very clearly said that use of race in education was not legitimate. Um, that you can't, you cannot choose uh, college students based on race, and uh, that he, he pulled his punches that time and seems to have flipped entirely uh, by this time. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't speculate as to exactly the reasons why on a, on a case that otherwise is identical, he would have a different uh, vote this time. Um, but I do think it's kind of interesting. Historically, we, we, when there's shifts of personnel in the court, you often see some of the other justices move around. So, for example, when Justice Thomas joined the court, it seems like Kennedy and O'Connor actually moved a little more to the left, maybe feeling they had to counterbalance him, um, being such a strong conservative, replacing uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall. Uh, but it maybe is working the other way around in this case. It seems like, at least thus far, Kennedy seems to be maybe shifting even farther to the left, uh, having lost Justice Scalia. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens if uh, it a, uh, if Hillary Clinton is the one to replace uh, Justice Scalia, then we're going to certainly see another very strong liberal vote on the court. Um, if Merrick Garland is concerned, I, uh, confirmed, I think you'd also see another uh, a fifth strong liberal vote. And it'll be interesting to see if Kennedy continues to uh, this leftward trend to be part of, uh, you know, whether whether it's because the wind is blowing that way and or he wants to be on the winning side. You know, I know he likes that as well. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see if Kennedy continues that leftward drift. Very interesting. All right, um, Michael, let's think about the effect of Justice Scalia's replacement on the court. Uh, assume that uh, Hillary Clinton or President Obama make the appointment. Uh, how important will this be? In the end, despite predictions of lots of four-to-four -four splits, 
there were only two big ones this term on immigration and on the First Amendment rights of unions. It's true that the contraception case was sent back to the lower courts uh, in order to avoid a split, so that may have been affected by Justice Scalia's departure. But on abortion and affirmative action, voting rights, those were lopsided decisions. So how important would a liberal replacement for Justice Scalia be, and how would that affect the role not only of Justice Kennedy but also of Chief Justice Roberts? I think the answer depends on how aggressively the liberal wing of the court would move not only to sort of fill in the gaps in the ways they like, but to roll back precedents that they're unhappy with. So two issues that occur to me as places where the more liberal justices have not uh, acquiesced and are sort of rethinking uh, the existing doctrine are uh, campaign finance and the death penalty. So we saw last term and then repeated again this term, Justice Breyer calling for re-examination of the basic question of whether the death penalty is cruel and unusual punishment under all circumstances. Uh, I'm pretty sure he doesn't have five votes now for that, even though Justice Kennedy has moved towards invalidating the death penalty in various circumstances, but he might get a fifth vote for that after a replacement. Um, with respect to campaign finance, uh, I think that that is a potentially wide open area. You know, the tendency of the pundits is to focus on Citizens United, but Citizens United is just a kind of placeholder for the broader proposition that goes back to the leading 1976 case of Buckley against Vallejo, that the expenditure of money around a campaign counts as freedom of speech, such that limitations on it count as abridgments of freedom of speech. And I think that could be re-examined as well with a sort of uh, clear liberal majority on the court. There are probably lots of other issues. You know, some of the federalism cases uh, might have that sort of uh, valence as well. Although I would note that there was a little noticed decision last week in a federalism case um, that uh, sustained a, uh, a conviction um, under a federal statute that seemed to scale back some of the uh, more dramatic decisions um, limiting the federal commerce clause. So even under the Roberts court, we've seen some scaling back of what people at one point were calling the federalism revolution. I think you would likely uh, to see a, a more dramatic scaling back of it uh, under um, a more liberal majority. Uh, and I think what the role of the Chief Justice in those circumstances would be to try as much as possible to exert leadership in cases that don't have a clear ideological valence. Uh, and he's been pretty good at doing that on the existing court. I don't think, you know, I don't think he'd have the ability to uh, bring the court around on cases where the justices have very strong ideological druthers, though. Great. Thanks so much. Kerry, do you agree or not that although in ca cases like campaign finance and the death penalty and maybe federalism, the liberal replacement might make a difference uh, on the other cases like abortion and affirmative action, which are already five to four, maybe less so? And how do you think Chief Justice Roberts would maintain his relevance on a court where he was not reliably in the majority in the most hotly contested cases? Well, first of all, to say that the, a, a liberal replacement for Justice Scalia might have an effect on the court is dramatically understating it. This would be a huge sea change in the Supreme Court. 
uh, to have to go from the cases where the most uh, liberal outcomes always were the result of four liberals appealing to a swing vote, appealing to a Kennedy vote. And, and I think there are many cases where we saw a more moderate result because they were appealing to this other, other vote or a, a case that was, uh, was written differently in the opinion than it would have been you know, if, if Justice Ginsburg had been writing simply for herself, for example. Um, I, to, to go from that to something where they would not really have to appeal to Justice Kennedy's uh, vote, I think w- would be a huge sea change. This is why uh, the New York Times itself said that this would probably be the most liberal court in 50 years if uh, Garland is confirmed, and I think the same would go for anyone else that, that uh, Hillary Clinton would likely choose if she were the one choosing the, the replacement for Justice Scalia as well. So I think that's absolutely – we're going to see things, and I think the question – it's hard to predict looking at what the court has done so far, how far they would be willing to go. My bet would be that the, the current members of the court would join with a liberal replacement for Scalia to go very – as fast and as quickly to undermine some of these precedents as they were able to. We've already got to add to those two, uh, the campaign finance and death penalty issues, which I, I, I agree with Michael are probably ones that are, could be on the chopping block if uh, we have a, a liberal replacement for Scalia. Um, I think you'd add the U.S. versus Heller case. That's a, a, a landmark Second Amendment opinion written by Justice Scalia. It was a 5-4 case, and it's one that people like Hillary Clinton have specifically targeted and said they'd like to roll back. That's the case that said that you do have an individual right to bear arms. Uh, so you don't have to be a member of a state militia to have your Second Amendment rights. You, everyone has that right for their own self-defense. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who would love to just turn turn that right back around. And we've seen uh, in in the more recent cases, uh, the court doesn't take in terribly many uh, gun cases, but the, uh, it seems like there's definitely a robust uh, for justices, I think, for uh, overturning that. And I think some of the other cases that we've seen hotly divided recently that you could see pushed back on uh, are particularly religious freedom cases. Now, the Little Sisters of the Poor this term, we, the court was able to find a um, largely, I think, due to the, the um, uh, forced admission by the government that they, are, they didn't have to use the Little Sisters insurance plans to achieve their goals of providing contraceptives to women, um, that they, they were able, the court was able to find a compromise that everyone was happy with and, and say that there's got to be a way to achieve all of these goals and preserve religious freedom. But when you recall how uh, closely divided the Hobby Lobby case was a few years ago. I think this is an area, and it's, it's, it's an issue that is only getting more and more pressure as we see the government, uh, the, the federal government, trying to enact, uh, you know, these bathroom laws and and and, and forcing these things in through administrative uh, means. A lot of these are going to be challenged, and there's some serious religious freedom concerns. I think you're going to see a real pushback on the direction of the court where Kennedy. Uh, was really respectful of those uh, religious freedom claims, I don't think you're going to see the same level uh, of protection for religious freedom if you have a, a, a garland on the court or, or a, a, a liberal replacement uh, appointed by uh, Hillary Clinton as a president. So uh, those are all a few different areas that I think are going to see a big difference. But, of course, um, you know, there, there, there are other areas that are, that are going to be uh, coming up and that are going to be hard to predict as well. Uh, thanks so much for that. Uh, Mike, let's take another beat on this. Um, there was a book that the American Constitution Society published uh, not long ago called The Constitution in 2020, trying to imagine what a liberal constitution would look like. And that's no longer a theoretical possibility, as Kerry suggests, if a president, Hillary Clinton, 
uh, were to appoint uh, not only one but maybe even two replacements, think broadly uh, 10 or 20 years ahead. Imagine that there's a comfortable liberal majority. In addition to the cases Kerry mentioned, like uh, Second Amendment and religious freedom, what broad areas of constitutional law could be transformed in a more liberal direction, and, and, and what would they look like? Um, I think it might be useful to answer that question by thinking back to the last time we had a similar transformation, which was um, in the late New Deal, when uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt appointed a majority of the Supreme Court justices. And if you would ask people at the time, what does this portend going forward? I think what you would have been told was, well, this means you're going to have a court that is going to be extremely deferential to Congress and the states, because of course the defining characteristic of the old court that had stood up to Roosevelt uh, and to state legislatures was the uh, uh, what was pejoratively called judicial activism on economic issues, uh, and the sort of canonical response was restraint. The court steps out, steps back, lets political actors uh, take center stage. It's not what happened. Uh, it happened a little bit and at the beginning, but what happened was that issues that hadn't previously been salient uh, for the courts and for the society at large became salient, especially civil rights, civil liberties, uh, and related questions. And the justices who had been appointed because they all believed that the court ought to defer to legislators and executive officials with respect to economic regulation took different paths with respect to uh, these new questions. So you had, you know, uh, Frankfurter on the one side and Black and Douglas on the other side, all ardent New Dealers. And now all of a sudden Frankfurter becomes a conservative because the issues have changed. I think that's quite possible um, that if you imagine a string of Democratic appointees to the court, that you could see a lot of the changes that Kerry referred to, that is to say, on issues that are currently salient, uh, the federal constitutional law, statutory interpretation becomes essentially more liberal, but that you could see the emergence of new issues. For example, what are the acceptable limits on artificial intelligence, on um, you know, the use of various biotechnologies, issues involving globalization as to which there are splits, but they don't have a clear left-right valence. All of these could, I think, divide a currently understood as liberal court along fault lines that we haven't yet begun to imagine. So I don't want to try to look into a crystal ball and say, you know, they're going to disagree in 2023 on the rights of robots, uh, because <laughs> I have no idea. But I do think that I could predict that whatever the ideologically coherent set of positions that they have as a group when they're appointed, they will fracture as new issues become salient. Great. Kerry, this is such an interesting thought experiment that I'll ask you to engage in it too. Uh, Mike suggests that on issues like biotech, genetic, engineering, globalization, there might be unexpected fissures. For example, you could imagine, as he suggests, uh, civil libertarian liberals and libertarian conservatives embracing a broad vision of autonomy that might allow people to select their own 
genes or create designer offspring, whereas social conservatives might join with traditional judicial restraint liberals. Do you imagine, can you play out uh, some of these unexpected fissures and do you think they would develop or would we see a conservative nightmare of liberal judicial activists imposing their will on an unwilling nation? Well, I think actually some of those examples you give highlight an important difference that we can forget with all of the politically charged discussions we have. But actually, I think the, the, the key distinction between the justices and the court isn't even so much their political position, but what is their judicial philosophy? So is my judicial philosophy one that is going to look uh, at the Constitution very much divorced from the policy views, or are, there, are those policy views, is it one that allows those to be imported into your constitutional perspective, either because you believe the Constitution is evolving in some way or you're looking to public standards of decency or all, all of these different ways that, that various legal tests um, provide a way to import your what, what you think is just your gut call on this is the right thing to do into your, your judicial uh, uh, Approach. So, for example, you mentioned you know you could have a uh, a, conser- a conservative policy th- group saying that they don't they don't want to have uh, certain kinds of biotechnology used. I think some of those questions actually are, are probably easier if you have a conservative judicial philosophy because m- many of these things, you know, the Constitution doesn't actually give the authority to Congress to regulate. So you could have a whole bunch of different results. Um, that, that states might want to come to or the federal government might want to come to. But I think the question for, for judges with, a, with um, what I, you know, a, traditionally a conservative judicial philosophy, but what I think would be the right judicial philosophy would just be to say, hey, you know what, these are really new topics. These are very different than what our, the founders uh, were looking at. But we, don't, we can't say what the right answer is to this, as to whether we should be favoring or opposed to, to globalization or favoring or opposed to these different biotechnology applications. Uh, but we'll simply ask the question of, is, is, does the Constitution speak to it? And if it doesn't, then it leaves it either to the federal government or to the state, depending on uh, which, which area it is. So a lot of these things, the federal government may have no authority to regulate. So you know, regardless of whether you thought their regulations were good or too lax or too, too strict, uh, you may come to a conclusion saying, hey, this isn't something the court should jump into. So a lot of those issues, uh, and, you know, maybe the way they'll develop, there will be an obvious constitutional nexus. But right now it seems to me the question is more, are judges going to simply, can they can simply confine themselves to uh, their, the rel- relatively modest job of, hey, we're going to interpret the Constitution. We, the government is given certain powers, and they, they have to confine themselves to those powers, and there's certain limitations. And as long as the court is limiting itself to looking at those, I think it actually could hopefully cross some of these lines. So you may have very different views on what the best policy is on these things, but hopefully we'd be able to come to some similar results constitutionally on them. And I think we've seen that happen in cases in the past. One that comes to mind would be um, the medical marijuana case, where you saw a coalition that included people like Justice Thomas, who's you know, not generally, I think, pro-drug uh, or, or pro-necessarily legalization of drugs, but thought the federal government doesn't have the authority to regulate locally grown marijuana. So it's not because he loves marijuana. It's because he thinks that the Constitution simply says you can't go there. And I think that's, that's an area, where, and then he ended up aligned with more, some of the more liberal justices, and Scalia was on the other side of that case. So here's two people, you know, both conservative on opposite sides of a decision. I think those, those distinctions may prove to be what Michael uh, kind of described as how you could have someone who they, they both are, you know, might be, quote, liberal or, quote, conservative, but if you have a judicial philosophy that is very, um, that's just strictly constitutionalist, you may actually have people that come to 
these uh, the legal results that differ wildly from the hotly contested political concepts of the day. And I, I think that would be a good thing for our system because that's how it, it should be. We shouldn't have judges making political calls. They should be simply making the legal calls. Wonderful. Uh, Mike, uh, Kerry has just defended a bipartisan tradition of judicial restraint that generally holds the court to defer to legislatures, as she suggests some of the conservative justices have been part of it, as have the liberal justices in my riveting new book, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet, which I try to plug on every podcast. Uh, Justice Ginsburg told me, quote, I consider myself perhaps the most restrained justice on this court in in respecting the legislative product, and in this regard, Brandeis was path-marking for me. So Justice Ginsburg considers herself part of this deferential tradition. My question to you, Mike, is as you think of possible Hillary Clinton uh, nominees, might there be a difference between uh, judicial restraint uh, liberals in the the Ginsburg and and perhaps the Garland mode and more, I'll say, engaged uh, liberals? Uh, What would they look like? And which kind of liberal is a President Hillary Clinton more likely to appoint? Uh, Well, so let me begin by saying that judicial restraint is something that lots of people preach, almost nobody, and certainly nobody on the current Supreme Court, with the occasional exception of Justice Thomas, practices. Uh, if you if you look at sort of ideological, econometrical studies of the court, it's very hard to find a justice who votes contrary to their ideological druthers based on a judicial philosophy consistently. Uh, the second Justice Harlan does does the best on these studies, and since then Justice Powell did occasionally. Um, uh, after that, it's very hard to distinguish. So. Um, you know, I would I would push back on Kerry's suggestion that you have conservatives who are merely enforcing the Constitution as written, and then liberals who are writing in their preferences. That's a familiar trope, but the evidence just doesn't support it by any measure you want to use, right? So if you look at the sort of hot button issues, you will find that uh, regardless of whether the question is to uphold or strike down the law, the liberals and conservatives divide equally. So, yeah, there are cases where the conservatives will speak the language of judicial restraint. We shouldn't be imposing our will on abortion, but they're happy to impose their will on affirmative action, on guns, on campaign finance. In each case, they say, oh, no, no, we're not imposing our will. We're just doing what the Constitution says. But, of course, in each of these cases, the very question is, what does the Constitution say? And it's not enough to say, I believe it says what the original understanding was, or I believe it says what the words say, because that is the very question. Unless you're accusing people who disagree with you in good faith of actually acting in bad faith, then you need to come up with specific reasons, and then we're arguing about the particular cases. So I I think that while it's true, I, I certainly agree with the basic proposition that law is not all politics. It's not true that either conservatives or liberals systematically are more likely to be able to separate their uh, sort of values from their decisions, nor do I think it's necessarily a good thing. And maybe that's the difference in judicial philosophy is that uh, to the extent that I'm sort of defending the liberals and Kerry's defending the conservatives, uh, I think what the liberals are arguing for is sort of transparency and honesty. uh, And the conservatives are arguing for a kind of deception. Maybe it's a kind of self-deception. Having said that, right, back to your question, right? So I think that, you know, uh, Merrick Garland is a kind of conventional, moderate liberal. I think his, that's true, not just ideologically, but also methodologically. 
I think you're likely to find that in anybody who has been serving on a federal court for any significant length of time, because it's just the nature of the beast that you do a lot of application of legal doctrine, which has a kind of disciplining effect, at least in terms of forming habits. I think the way the place you're more likely to find someone who's going to go uh, be a little bolder uh, and, you know, say, I've got a constitutional vision, right? Somebody who's appointed specifically uh, by a conservative to overturn Roe v. Wade, by a liberal maybe to overturn Citizens United, is if you get somebody who has not uh, been a judge for very long uh, or at all, um, or who's someone sort of outside of what we think of as the judicial establishment. So, right, someone, someone like Elena Kagan wasn't a judge, but she was part of the judicial legal establishment. We haven't had somebody like that in a very long time. Uh, and that suggests to me that, you know, whoever's appointed, whether it's a liberal or a conservative in the event of a Trump administration, say, uh, if they are a judge, they're likely to at least speak the language of restraint. Great. We have just a few minutes left uh, to hit the most important cases of the term. And I want to begin with the Texas abortion case, which was uh, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. Uh, Carrie, what interested you most about it? I'll just kick off the discussion by saying how struck I was by Justice Thomas's dissenting opinion where he criticized the court during the past 80 years of uh, creating judicially created rights like the right to abortion and to preferred constitutional rights while disfavoring many of the rights actually enumerated in the Constitution. He called into question really uh, decades of uh, jurisprudence that treated human rights more uh, favorably than economic rights. But that, that just jumped out at me. What struck you about the abortion decision? Yeah, well, having, having clerked for Justice Thomas, I, I also was really drawn to his dissent. I thought it was interesting that he he not only was, was calling out what, what a lot of people call the, the abortion distortion of the fact that uh, in many times that courts seem to apply slightly different uh, rules when they're talking about abortion than when they deal with run-of-the-mill cases. And he, he criticized this as, as really undermining the legitimacy of the court because it appears that they're putting uh, precisely politics before uh, law. He said some constitutional rights are more equal than others. But he also went on to, under, to, to just undercut all of the, um, the, the whole standard of review system that is set. There's, there's these you know, strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny or rational basis scrutiny that we all learn in these constitutional law classes. But he pointed out that these are not in the Constitution. This is something that judges have kind of invented and, and uh, written on top of the law. And uh, in, in, in true uh, Thomistic fashion, he, hmm. he said, you know, we don't, we don't need to, to, to respect these. And, and on top of which, and, uh, and I think Michael alluded to this a little bit earlier, especially with judges uh, like Justice Kennedy, it's often become very mushy. You know, he'll say he's applying one standard, and then he kind of seems to be applying another standard in practice. Uh, so those, the, the standards can also become just uh, obscuring uh, what the law is. So I think that, that was a really interesting uh, angle uh, that I found interesting in the case. I thought it was another another line that I found was really interesting was one that um, I believe it was Ginsburg mentioned where she was uh, she was saying that you know she was addressing the fact that Kermit Gosnell uh, had, had had these atrocious uh, murders that he had committed and, and just terrible medical treatment he provided and that was some of the the things that incited Texas to raise their health standards. It was one of the things that was that Gosnell's grand jury had specifically said 
we need to in- increase these standards in this way, and that's what Texas was responding to. Uh, but she said, you know, there's going to be always bad people. Basically, increasing the regulations isn't going to isn't going to change anything. And I just thought how amusing that is in the context of, you know, uh, of many other issues. You know, we have a a, a, a a terrible shooting, and then everyone says, well, we need to have uh, gun control. But but other people say, well, there's a uh, you know. You already have, you have bad people. You're going to have bad people whether you have additional regulations or not. So it was interesting to hear that that line echoed from Justice Ginsburg on the opposite uh, side of the of the political spectrum. So um, I thought it, it was a it was a, again a case that wasn't a terribly surprising outcome, uh, given the fact that Justice Kennedy is is generally you know very critical of of, of even limited health. Uh, regulations on abortion, but still a, a disappointing one. And I, I have to agree with Justice Thomas that I, I do think it undermines legitimacy of the court because I, I don't think that they followed either on the procedural, you know, rest judicata issue that was a more technical issue, or on the analysis itself. Uh, it seems that they, they, instead of just simply following the, the precedent, they really amped up uh, the, the the scrutiny given to regulations on abortion. And in many cases, as Thomas pointed out, there there's uh, Increasing scrutiny in these, whether decreasing scrutiny on in, in actual uh, rights that are enumerated in the Constitution, freedom of speech, or equal protection simultaneously. So, uh, those are some interesting contrasts I saw in the case. Very interesting, uh, Mike. Your thoughts on not only uh, abortion, where there was that interesting exchange uh, about Dr. Gosnell in Pennsylvania, uh, but also affirmative action in both of those cases. The majority and the dissent. We're really getting into the weeds of the policy debate on, on Dr. Gosnell. The uh, dissenters said that the Texas law would prevent that, and the majority said you can stop those sort of atrocities by other means. And in affirmative action, they were debating about whether or not affirmative action harms Asians and about Justice Alito was quite passionate about the efficacy of the SATs. Uh, is this sort of policy-soaked debate unusual? And what struck you about both abortion and the affirmative action cases? Let me uh, begin with a parallel. So if you go back to the oral argument last year in Glossop against Gross, which was the case challenging a new drug protocol for executions in Oklahoma, at one point, Justice Alito says to the lawyer who's arguing the case for the, um, the condemned, he says, look, you death penalty lawyers have been waging a guerrilla war against the death penalty by trying to make the existing drugs unavailable. And now you're coming in here and you're telling us, hey, uh, this new drug is untested. You can't have it both ways. And so he was inclined to be highly skeptical of it. And the reason was that he thought you're complaining about the method of execution, but your real goal is to ban the death penalty. Uh, And so they weren't receptive to the claim. My understanding of what happened in the Texas abortion case is something quite similar. These are laws that are passed by an overwhelmingly pro-life Texas legislature with the goal of making abortion more difficult. These are not legislators who are known for paying a lot of attention to regulating medicine in the interest of making it safer. If you look at the record in the district court cited at length by Justice Breyer in his opinion. It's obvious that they're not adopting either the ambulatory surgical center requirement, which basically says that you have to have, have an abortion in something like a hospital, 
or the admitting privileges requirement because they're concerned about health. If they were, they would apply it to many more uh, procedures that are much riskier than abortion. They're doing it for the purpose of making abortions hard to get. Now, maybe you think that abortion is immoral and therefore the state legislature ought to be able to prohibit it. Or maybe you think the Constitution doesn't protect a right to abortion. If that's your argument, make that argument. But don't come in here claiming this is a health regulation when that's obviously nonsense. So one of the, the beautiful things about this opinion, in my view, is it, it takes a page from um, Charles Black, who wrote a famous essay in defense of Brown against uh, Board of Education, saying that at some point, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, that at some point justices uh, have to um, uh, be able to look at reality and use their common sense. And that's what how I saw what I saw the court doing here. Now, with respect to the affirmative action case, um, the the court had said in prior cases you can make limited use of race. What I thought was the most interesting thing about this case was what the majority said about the Texas percent plan. Uh, under this plan, if you're in the top 10%, or as it turns out now, 7% of your graduating high school class in Texas, you get automatically admitted to a state university. Uh, and then they add on a little bit of consideration of race. Uh, and many of us thought that the case would might say, hey, you've got to use a, a percentage plan. Justice Kennedy adopts language by Justice Ginsburg in a prior case saying, hey, you know what? The only reason the percentage plan really gives you substantial racial diversity is because secondary schools in Texas are essentially segregated by race de facto. And so you're just piggybacking on top of that. So once again, what I saw as unusual and a breath of fresh air was the court acknowledging the reality that we all know is out there, but that somehow uh, often doesn't make its way into the law. So yes, they get into the weeds, but it's in the service of actually figuring out what's really going on. Thank you very much for that. All right. Uh, it is time, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for closing arguments. Uh, Carrie Severino, uh, at the end of this quite uh, significant uh, Supreme Court term, uh, what do the final decisions say about the future of the Roberts Court and what are the stakes of the vacancy for the future of constitutional law? Yeah, well, I think the stakes uh, certainly couldn't be higher. The the potential for a, a president that's ideologically completely in the opposite end of the spectrum to replace Justice Scalia means that a court that that stood kind of in a 4-4-1 balance, uh, but a tenuous one uh, just a few months ago, now will, will be dramatically shifted one way or the other. And I think we all knew this was going to come eventually, and, and certainly there will be more shakeups in the coming years because we have a lot of justices nearing retirement age, but I don't think anyone quite expected it to come so soon and uh, not necessarily with uh, Justice Scalia, who, would be, who uh, I think offer the possibility to have the most dramatic impact for either Obama or, or uh, a Clinton if they, if they have the opportunity to uh, be the ones switching uh, the, the vote on the court. So I think there's a, a real serious uh, outcome. And I think it, it, it boils down to a lot more than I, it, even as you summarized it, <clears throat> whether the court simply defers a lot to the legislature. We're not, I'm not talking about deference to the legislature. It's deference to the Constitution. So it's not, uh, I, I think the court actually, the conservatives have pushed back on deferring to, uh, to the executive or to the legislature. Uh, it, it's more having a court that is, that is you know, within itself re ready to uh, defend the checks and balances 
of the Constitution. I think we saw uh, a shockingly small number of 4-4 decisions, and that speaks to the ability of the court to make compromises, and I think we'll see Justice Roberts going forward particularly if we um, have this dramatic liberal shift to, to do what he can it, to the extent that he's able to forge more of these narrow decisions, um, maybe to try to stem the tide of uh, the dramatic uh, shifts that we would see constitutionally. But, but I think if we do have uh, this, uh, this vacancy filled, by a, a liberal appointee, uh, then we're going to have a, something dr very dramatic akin to some of the Warren court decisions and seeing a sea change in, in uh, the way the Constitution is viewed for a generation. Thanks so much, Kerry. Uh, Mike, last word to you. Your closing thoughts on what this Supreme Court term says about the future of the Roberts Court and the significance of the vacancy for the future of constitutional law. Well, I think it's undoubtedly important. Uh, we can get a little bit carried away with that, right? So the Supreme Court doesn't decide whether we go to war, doesn't decide what tax rates shall be, uh, doesn't decide whether we uh, stay with our trade agreements. So there are lots of things in this election and in every election that are, are going to be decided without regard to the court. Even with regard to things it does decide, sometimes its impact is quite small. So we talked a little bit about... Um, Heller and McDonald, the cases finding a Second Amendment right of individuals. Those cases are important, but they're mostly important symbolically because um, they also allow significant gun regulation. In fact, they seem to allow more than our political system is capable of producing, at least at the federal level and with the exception of some uh, local laws. The California uh, law that was upheld by the Ninth Circuit is a, an example recently, perhaps. Um, but within that framework of, you know, the limited effect of the Supreme Court on American life, but still substantial effect, uh, I do think this is an important moment for us. And I think there is a, there might be a tendency of, uh, liberals to breathe a sigh of relief to say, ah, well, Justice Kennedy has swung to the left now. So even if the Republicans continue to refuse to give Merrick Garland a hearing, and even if God help us, Donald Trump becomes president and gets to replace Justice Scalia, there'll still be a five justice liberal majority for the things I really care about. And I would say the liberals were thinking that not so fast, right? As Kerry said, there are other justices who might retire um, in the next four years. Um, it could be eight years. Who knows? Uh, and that these fights about what the Constitution means, and let's be clear, it's, the question is not whether we are constitutionalists, as some of my conservative friends like to say, we're all constitutionalists. The question is, how do we understand the Constitution? But these fights about what the Constitution means are perennial, right? We've been arguing about abortion, affirmative action, the death penalty, guns, et cetera, even, you know, the balance of power between the states and, and the uh, federal government for years, in some cases for centuries. And we're going to continue to argue about that. But at least for the near to medium term, uh, it is tremendously important who succeeds Justice Scalia and who succeeds the next justice or two to leave the court. Thank you so much, Carrie Severino and Mike Dorff, for an illuminating, fresh and surprising series of observations on one of the most consequential Supreme Court terms in recent memory. Carrie, Mike, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash constitutionctr, 
and on our Twitter feed, twitter.com forward slash Constitution CTR. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com forward slash Panoply. And finally, and dear friends, it's really important for me to say this. Despite our congressional charter, the, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. That's why we've offered this promotion. If you join the National Constitution Center uh, and become a member of our family at a level of $125 or more, I will be so happy to send you a signed copy of my new book, Louis D. Brandeis, American Profit. More importantly, you'll be supporting the center. We'll find out about our latest constitutional news, our education, our incredible range of programs, and we'll be part of this community that really cares about constitutional education across America. It's so important in these polarized times. So please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.